Good morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I just thank you for uh, this time to come together with my with my church family. I, I, I look around the room and I see uh, my sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and the faith, and they are just precious to me. They are a great treasure to me. And when I think about this moment, um, I, I feel the weight of it. I, I stand here with a certain amount of fear and trembling. But I also rejoice. We're going to open your word and read about who you are and what you have done and what you call us to be and to do. And that is just wonderful news. You have not left us in the dark to stumble and wander around and, and, and wonder who you are and what you've done and what you've called us to be. So I just rejoice in that. I, I pray that you would increase and that I would decrease. Amen. If some of you are too young to remember him, but in 1986, a young, I'll put the word hero in, in air quotes, a young hero sprang onto the scene. He gave teenagers across America a renewed sense of purpose. He did so by making himself a bright, shining example of what every teenager, and for that matter, every child, and truth be told, every adult in their flesh longs for successful rebellion. This hero, through lies and manipulation and an absurd amount of luck, rebelled. He rebelled against the authority of parents and a principal and one particularly snooty maitre d'. Ferris Bueller was his name, and almost everybody loved him because everybody in some way or another loves the dream of casting aside any notion of submission and getting one over on the authorities in our life. And if we're honest, we should acknowledge the world hates any hint of submission. And I know there is at, at least a part of you that hates submission because there's a part of me that hates it too. As we talk about our call to submission, you may even feel some of that hatred welling up inside you as we discuss these things. The idea of it's uncomfortable, to say the least. A call to submission feels a lot more like sandpaper than cotton. And we respond accordingly. We recoil. We pull back. We immediately start to look for an exit strategy. Surely there's got to be some escape hatch so I can get out of this. 
However, there is a call to submission for us, and it's in our text this morning in Ephesians 5 and 6. But before we jump right in there, I think it would be wise to to prepare our minds, to get our minds right, if you will. The book of Ephesians is a letter. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the saints in Ephesus, to the church there, and probably to other churches and other believers in that region. They would have called it Asia. We would think of it as Turkey. And the fact that this letter, and especially the, the last half of this letter, is written to believers is important, and that's, that's a fact that we should not forget as we move through this text. For us to appreciate the importance, we need to understand the difference between indicatives and imperatives. Now, I'm not big on giving you an extensive vocabulary list, but these two are worth remembering, indicatives and imperatives. The first three chapters of this letter are filled with indicatives. And we can think of indicatives generally as right thinking or right knowing, right believing. And we might describe the indicatives in this letter to the Ephesians as who God is and who we, in the sense that we're talking about believers, and that's to whom the letter was sent, who we were, who we used to be, and what God has done for us. And then the, the imperatives follow the indicatives in this letter, and that's not by accident. Imperatives generally are right acting, right living. We might say right doing. Imperatives are more along the lines of here's the stuff you ought to be doing, and here's the stuff you ought not to be doing. And the relationship between indicatives and imperatives is important. We are given the indicatives, and in this letter especially, we often come across this word, therefore, which will then transition us to the imperatives. So think of it this way. Indicatives are the sure foundation. And the imperatives are the beautiful home that stands on that foundation. Now, solid foundation won't keep the rain off your head. But if you start to build without one, eventually you're going to have a mess on your hands, an expensive mess on your hands. So building a house that is sure to collapse is exactly what we do when we try to impose the imperatives on non-believers who know nothing of the indicatives, it always ends in an ugly mess. So if you don't know what you believe about this Jesus person, if you're only here because somebody made you come, if you have not yet come to the point where you are ready to confess your faith and surrender yourself to Jesus Christ, the call to submission will sound absurd and it might even sound a little offensive. 
And that's because the indicatives come first. So before we move on to the imperatives, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time, but before we get there, I think it might be useful just to remind ourselves what Paul has instructed at the beginning of the letter. So I just want to read just a little snapshot of of the indicatives. We're not going to spend any real time talking about it, but it's just a good reminder. And you perhaps may have heard this recently, say a week ago, but it's so good we're going to read it again. And it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that's a whole lot of good news right there. And in light of that good news, or we might go ahead and say, therefore, we'll spend most of our time on the imperatives. We're going to really concentrate on on the text starting in verse 21 of chapter 5, but I want to start reading in verse 15 of chapter 5, and I'll explain why here in just a minute. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in uh, verse 15, let's look at this together. It says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's stop and talk about this so far right here. I I think it will prove helpful in understanding verse 21, and that's our launching point for all the rest of of the text. I think it'll prove helpful in understanding that and what follows if we understand what led up to verse 21 in these verses, Paul begins with an, an instruction to be careful how you walk. You can walk wisely, which would be making good use of the time, because 
This life is like a vapor. It's a mist. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. No one knows the number of their days. Or you can walk foolishly and waste the short time. And and compared to eternity, it's a short time. Waste the short time that you have. So in the age of the smartphone, a warning against wasted time is just wise counsel. And I'm already beginning to feel convicted from my own sermon. So if you are too, we'll, we'll limp along together. We are not to be foolish, but we are to understand what the will of the Lord is. Paul instructs, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now he's talking about this idea of excessive indulgence. So if you, if you just can't get through the day without a six-pack or a bowl of Hershey's Kisses or an entire bag of barbecue chips, you may be leaning on the wrong things. What should you be doing instead? You should be filled with the Spirit. Now let's think about this. We know that Paul has addressed this letter to believers. He's talking about people who are converted So what is he talking about here? Listen to John MacArthur's explanation. He says this, Paul is not speaking of the Holy Spirit's indwelling or the baptism by Christ with the Holy Spirit because every Christian is indwelt and baptized by the Spirit at the time of salvation. Rather, he is giving a command for believers to live continually under the influence of the Spirit By letting the word control them, pursuing pure lives, confessing all known sin, dying to self, surrendering to God's will, and depending on his power in all things. The idea here is that as believers, we don't need chocolate or alcohol or cigarettes to to sustain us because we are pressing into Christ We are daily standing under the shower of his grace and his mercy and his love. That's what gets us through the day. Now that sounds great and all, but what does that mean? What does that look like in our lives? Well, Paul answers that question by giving us three imperatives. Three things that we are to be and to do. The first one is in verse 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So spirit-filled people have hearts that spill over in praise for the one who saved them. Well, I'm not a very good singer. That doesn't have anything to do with it. You make a joyful noise. The second one is in verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit-filled people cannot help but to cry out to God in thanks for what he has done for them. 
And the third one, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Spirit-filled people will adorn themselves with a submissive spirit. Spirit-filled people will have a servant's heart. In Luke chapter 2, we get a beautiful example of this. Jesus is 12 years old. He's traveling to Jerusalem with mom and dad. He ends up left in the temple, and he's there for three days. And during that time, he, he amazes the teachers with his insight into the scriptures and his questions. And I wonder why that is. And then eventually mom and dad find him. And they're a little miffed, a little frustrated. It's been three days. They didn't know where he was. Listen to his response to them. This is Luke 2, verses 49 and 50. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. This is important. Jesus understands things that they do not. His understanding is superior to theirs. You see that? And yet, what does he do? Verse 51, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. So his role as a 12-year-old, is to submit to them. And that is what he does. The call to submission is not about who is the smartest. The call to submission is not about who is the smartest. That means that it is inevitable. It's going to happen. It is inevitable that scripture requires of you. It commands you to submit to somebody at some point along the way who doesn't understand some stuff that you do, who doesn't get it like you. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about our call to submission. He says, We must be of a yielding and of a submissive spirit and ready to all the duties of the respective places and stations that God has allotted to us in the world. We are commanded to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. But Paul, how does that work? What does that look like? Give me some specifics, Paul. Well, that's exactly what he's going to do. He's going to answer these questions. He's going to give a specific call to submission to different groups of people who are called to different roles. But before we jump right in there, I want to set up some guardrails on how we interpret these things. There are three, there's a lot, but I'm going to talk about three possible errors and how we interpret this text we're going to jump into here. 
The first one may not be as prevalent as the other two, but it scares me the most. So I'm going to start there. The first error, the first interpretive error is that someone listening to this or watching this could be suffering terrible abuse, excuse me, (coughs) sorry, terrible abuse at the hands of a person in authority over them. And they'll make the mistake of believing that the call to submission is an endorsement of their abuse. And that's wrong. Nothing in this letter forbids a true victim of real abuse to ask for help, to call somebody. God is just. God is never indifferent to the suffering of the innocent. And it's not just that he's not indifferent. He's got a lot more to say about it than that. As a matter of fact, he has nothing particularly nice to say to those who are in a position of authority who abuse and torment those who are called to submit to them. He says stuff like, God's done listening to your prayers. To abuse those called to to submit to you is evil. And God doesn't have a lot of comfort for that. As a matter of fact, he says, it is my will, it is my plan that you be terrified because I have other authorities and they are coming for you. So this isn't an endorsement of abuse of authority. Second error. Someone who is not suffering abuse will disregard the call to submission because anytime there's authority, then abuse is possible. And since I hate the idea of submission, well, then this must not apply to me. For example, well, okay, but what if my dad told me to build a bomb in the garage? Well, did your dad tell you to build a bomb in the garage? No, he told me to clean the garage. Well, then this applies. But we've all gone there, right? What's the exception to the rule so I can disregard it? And then number three, submitting to one another means that there are no distinctions at all in how we live this out. Wives and husbands submit to one another without distinction. Parents and children submit to one another without distinction. Executives and employees submit to one another without distinction. Now, of course, the argument is always in the context of Wives and husbands. There's a lot of books written about that. You don't have to look very long before you'll see this argument in our culture. But this is what we need to understand about the context of this letter and this specific text. The way this is written, if that's the truth about wives and husbands, then it has to be the truth about parents and children and employees and employers. So how many of you in this room either are right now or have ever been the parent of a four-year-old. 
So if you were actually commanded to submit to that four-year-old, it's not going to take long before your house is going to burn to the ground, right? I mean, you better hope you have fire insurance, except a four-year-old would say, why do we need that when we can spend all that money on Snickers? So you won't. That's not what this says. So let's avoid these three errors, and let's get into this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Starting in verse 22, Paul will give specific instructions to specific people about how to live this out. Here we go. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now let's note right out of the gate here that this instruction is for wives. Husbands, this isn't for you. There's no command here to you. He'll get to you in a minute. But not yet. So our job as husbands is not, not to make sure our wives submit to us. Well, that's impossible, first of all. Compliance and submission are not the same thing. I bullied her into doing something is not her submission. That's not the same thing. And note also that it instructs wives to submit to their own husbands. So women submit to all men is not what this says. So verses 22 to 33 addresses this unique relationship between husbands and wives. So if you are a young lady here and you are not yet married, do I really want to submit to this guy? Do I really want to follow this guy? Is a question that you should ask before you get too attached. Not, not, not before the wedding or not before the engagement and not before you get emotionally so tied up into this guy that I can't see myself without before you get to attach you should be evaluating am I really going to follow him wives your joyful submission to your own husbands is born out of your reverence for Christ not out of your husband's worthiness. So let's dispel that myth right now. He's not. When I prepared this, I was concerned that there would be a feminine amen coming from that corner of the congregation, but she's gracious to me and didn't amen it. Thank you. All right, so this has nothing to do with how smart he is or how fit he is or how rich he is or how thoughtful he is on your anniversary. This is about being spirit-filled. It's not about being married to Prince Charming. And ladies, we need to be aware of the fact that this sort of God-honoring submission is going to be completely at odds with what your flesh wants. What does your flesh want? What is that 
not yet sanctified part of you want? Well, we see it back in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 16. God says this to the woman. He says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And then here it is. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So that desire shall be contrary could also be your desire shall be against your husband. So this is not desire as in like some sort of romantic thing. This is desire as in sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. This is the desire to dominate and domineer and to bend this guy to my will. To usurp his headship. That's what you're called to war against. See, ladies, your your answer to this call to submission is based on your desire to be spirit-filled, based on your reverence for Christ, because he is worthy of your submission. All right, gentlemen, it's our turn. Hopefully Paul didn't set the bar too high for us. Let's see. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So we didn't lower the bar, fellows. Uh, Again, let's note here that other than this little piece at the end of verse 33, wives, this instruction is not for you. So if, as we talk about this, you feel the temptation to give a little reminder elbow, if, if you feel something welling up inside about the ride home, did you hear him? Don't do that. Don't do that. Uh, let the Spirit get him. He doesn't need your help. So husbands, we are to love our own wives the way Jesus loves his church. That's the standard. And what do we know about our example, the man, God, Jesus? Jesus Christ, first of all, let's note something that we're we're just not like, all right? Jesus Christ always was and lacked for nothing. So before Genesis 1-1, Jesus was not missing anything. In Acts 17, verses 24 and 25, it says, The God who made the world and everything in it, Being the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, 
since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So right away we see that Jesus is not like us, fellas. Jesus was fine without his bride, and you not so much. The perfect man in the perfect garden on a perfect earth did not have a bride, and it was not good. You do need her. But we are called to love our bride the way Christ loves his bride. And he loved his bride with such a great love that he gave himself up for her. And how did he do this? Well, we could come up with all sorts of ways, but I want to give you four this morning. Jesus did four things for his bride. Number one, he stepped away from the glory of heaven for his bride. Number two, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for his bride. Number three, he suffered her lawful punishment for his bride. And number four, he conquered death for his bride. So number one, he stepped away from the glory of heaven for his bride. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Swallow your pride, fellas. Number two, he fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for his bride. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 and 4. For God is not done with the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Number three, he suffered her lawful punishment for his bride. Isaiah 53, verses four and five. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And then last, number four, he conquered death for his bride. Romans chapter 8 again, verses 9 to 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact... The Spirit of God dwells in you, and anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So husbands, this is our model. You are called to love like Jesus loves. Love your wife as yourself, even your own body. Pour your life out for her. Love her so much that you are 
ready and willing to humble yourself for her, to act in her stead, to suffer for her, and to conquer what would harm her. Cherish your bride and tend to her heart with tender, loving care. And none of this is contingent on if she is worth all this. She isn't. Christ's bride did not deserve what he did for her either. But that's who you're called to be in the relationship. Husbands, you need to be on guard against the sins of aggression and passivity. Our flesh will gladly drive us into either direction. One direction would be to bully and abuse and dominate our wives. To control them using fear and cruelty. And we should just acknowledge that it is horrifying what women have suffered at the hands of evil men. We should grieve that. Husbands, our wives should feel safer and more secure when they hear us pull up in the driveway to the house. Not less. The other danger is the sin of passivity. Our flesh will gladly let us just sit there and do nothing while our wives lead our homes and families. Our flesh wants us to just sit on the couch and disengage and do nothing. The command to be like Christ is a command to get up, lead, help her with the dishes and the laundry and the kids. It's in the Bible. We need to draw a distinction here. It is the stuff of little boys to be really, really in tune with how tired you are. You're going to go and work hard and be a great provider, and then you're going to go home, and the more important stuff just began. Men aren't hyper-focused on how tired they are. Little boys are. And I I was going to say wives aren't for little boys, but I need to rephrase that. Wives shouldn't be for little boys. They should be for men. Passivity got us all in a lot of trouble. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God... God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And you know how this ends, right? Badly. Adam, where are you? Speak up, Adam. Defend your family, Adam. But he was passive. And now there's cancer and war. I'm not saying that this is going to be some daily occurrence in your marriage, all right? But there may come a time, and there 
There may come a place and there may come a situation, husbands, where you are called upon to stand before your wife like an angry warrior. So that those who would do her evil look over at the two of you and say, "Mm, not her, he looks upset. Please understand me, that's not somehow not Jesus-y. Skip to the end. He's coming. And the people who have harmed his bride are going to say, he looks upset. Husbands, be like the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Don't be like the first Adam who blew it. Husbands, we are to submit in our marriage by being servant leaders who love our wives as our own flesh by graciously leading in loving kindness. Let's keep moving. Chapter 6, here we go. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Children, now that can be a confusing word in 2019. Children, when does that no longer apply? You may not really be a, a child anymore, but if your parents are making your doctor's appointments and they're paying for your insurance and your electricity, this applies to you. This applies to you. Joyful obedience to parents out of reverence for Christ is the fruit of being spirit-filled. How do you know if you are seeking Christ-likeness, if you are pressing into Jesus? Is your life marked by glad obedience to mom and dad? Now, there's a qualifier on this, of course. You are to obey in the Lord. Don't build the bomb in the garage, but clean it. Okay, verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So let's note here that this command applies to everyone. There, there will come a day when you're an adult and you're, you're no longer required to obey your parents in the same way you were required to as a child, but you're still commanded to honor them. Um, even if they're not particularly honorable people, honor them. A society where people honor their parents will enjoy blessings that won't be enjoyed where parents are not honored. Verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, we should note here that in some places, this word for father also applies to parents. So I think we can go ahead and say parents. I like the way Matthew Henry talks about this verse. Though God has given you great power, you must not abuse that power, remembering that you, your children are, in a particular manner, pieces of yourselves, and therefore ought to be governed with great tenderness and love. Sorry, excuse me. Proverbs 3, verses 1 to 8. Listen to this. My son, do not forget my teaching, 
But let your heart keep my commandments for the length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Listen to this. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Do you, do you hear the plea there? This is not a parent saying, I'm going to keep you under my thumb. That's not what this is. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Son, daughter, I love you too much not to warn you. You're young, and with youth comes foolishness. Listen to my counsel, because I was young and dumb once, kind of just like you now. I love you, and I want to spare you the hardships I faced because of foolish decisions I made when I was young. Verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with them. So, of course, the, 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 the modern application of this would be employees and employers, right? Employees are to joyfully submit to their employers, and employers are not to abuse their employees. So here's the rub. If you're, if you're quick to tell anybody who will hold still long enough to listen how stupid and incompetent your boss is, you're not obeying this. Don't simply obey outwardly. Submit with a joyful heart. The warning here reminds me of another warning Jesus gave. Back in Matthew 5, in verses 21 and 22, he said this, You have heard it, that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And then he goes on if you, in verses 27 28. He says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if you obey the boss by way of eye service, but without a sincere heart, you've missed the point of this. If you obey your parents, but then roll your eyes as soon as their backs are turned, you are not actually submissive. 
If you speak tender words to your wife, but have no heartfelt affection for her, you are rebelling against the command of God. And if you respond graciously to your husband, well, to his face, but simmer in your heart with contempt for him, you are not reverencing Christ. The call to submission includes your internal dialogue. It includes your unspoken attitude. You may be saying and doing the right things, but are you clothing yourself in a submissive, servant-hearted spirit? The outward stuff is one thing, but the rest of it, I mean, let's be honest, this is hard. Obeying the call to submission is not an easy command. But there's some good news. Let's recognize the fact that God does not scowl at those who are striving to obey him, even if they're doing it imperfectly. Listen to this encouragement from Peter, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 10. This is what he says. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being, are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Here we go. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. God will sustain those who strive to obey his commands. You can do even hard things, even things that just sound impossible. You can do hard things because God's going to sustain those who strive to obey him. And it's, the call to submission is for you, for, for your good. It's a call to stop exhausting yourself with rebellion and come and rest in glad submission to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you have not left us to wonder and guess what obedience looks like. Help us to adorn ourselves with a joyful submission. Help us to be servant leaders like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.